Good afternoon. This is Pamela, and you're listening to Watchmen on the Pod. We are going to continue in our book reading from Chapter 11, out of Revelation Timeline Decoded by David Nokia Wilcoxon. Chapter 11, The Conquerors of the First Seal. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Chapter 6, 1 through 2. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, Messiah began to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, Messiah proclaimed that the time is at hand. Both of those statements tell us that the prophecies began to be fulfilled shortly after they were written. John uses symbols that the saints knew because the Roman Empire was conquering much of the territories of the three preceding empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Their military conquests were celebrated by riding white horses in their victory parades. At the death of Emperor Domitian, the Roman Senate appointed an elder statesman named Nerva in his place a colonist from the island of Crete. He was the first to occupy the throne of Augustus, who was not of Roman descent. He was selected on the merit of his ability. The bow relates to the Cretan dynasty of Nerva, as their warriors were known as the most famous race of bowmen in the ancient world. Alexander the Great used large companies of Grecian archers, Cretan, I'm sorry, not Grecian, Cretan archers, and Roman armies used them during Julius Caesar's time. Known as the adoptive emperors, the Nerva and Antonin, I don't know, a dynasty consisted of seven emperors who ruled over Roman Empire from 96 to 192 A.D. Trajan followed Nerva and not only reestablished Rome as a conquering force, but proved his greatness among scholars as perhaps second only to Augustus. Marcus Aurelius and sometimes forgotten Lucius Verus continue that pattern while re-establishing military superiority among the bordering Germanic tribes. Cretan Roman Emperor Hadron had a coin struck that has him wearing his laurel crown on the front and on the back he is riding on a horse to celebrate their military victory. This was a time of the Roman emperors, Empire's greatest expansion and their military conquest. White is the color of prosperity, happiness, and triumph. This crown is not the diadem that Messiah is wearing in Revelation 19.12, but the garland crown, Stephanus, which is given as a reward for victory in battle and games and great achievements. The period would come to an end amidst plague 
and the weariness of war with the death of Aurelius in 180 AD, as his son Commodus or Commodos ascended the throne as sole emperor, thus ending the period of adoptive authority. The empire's stability began to unravel. Edward Gibbon documented in the second century of Christian era, the empire of Rome comprehended the fairest part of the earth and the most civilized portion of mankind. If a man were called to fix the period in the history of the world during which the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would, without hesitation, name that which elapsed from the death of Domitian to the ascension of Commodus. In Vision of the Ages, 1881, Barton Johnson says, John was in exile in Patmos in the last year of the reign of Domitian, A.D. 96. In that year, the tyrant was slain. The humane Nerva succeeded him upon the Roman throne. With his reign begins a new epoch. It once the most brilliant and the most prosperous in Roman history. He was the founder of a new family of Caesars. He adopted as his son and successor the warlike Trojan or Trajan. And four years later, that distinguished warrior and conqueror received the crown. His reign, beginning some four or five years after John wrote, constitutes one of the most remarkable eras in Roman history. The mighty kingdom of Perthia in the heart of Central Asia, which had been which had before successfully hurled back the Roman armies, was laid prostrate at his feet and his victorious legions, then turned southward until they stood upon the shores of the southern seas. The terror of the Roman name was carried into kingdoms that had never before seen the face of a Roman soldier. While his greatest conquests were in Asia, in Europe, also, he ruled a vaster empire than any Roman, either before or after him. The fierce nations in the dark forest of the vast region of the Danube, or Danu, Danube and east of the Rhine had, until his time, successfully resisted the progress of the Roman arms. But his legions forced the passage of the Danube and, after five years' conflicts, conquered the kingdom of Dacia, occupying the regions now marked upon the Max as Hungary and Romania. Trajan was a distinguished general when John wrote. Before John had passed from earth, Trajan had received the diadem, and before a generation had passed, he stood the mightiest conqueror of the Roman name, save Julius Caesar, upon the shores of the southern ocean. His age was not only an age of conquest and triumph, fitly symbolized by the white horse and his rider, but an age of eternal peace and prosperity. Of this happy period, Trajan, who ascended the throne four years after the death of Domitian, is the chief figure. In all Grecian history, the bowmen of their armies are Cretans, the Rhodian slingers, the Thessalian horsemen, the Spartan spearmen, and the Cretan bowmen 
are constant features of Grecian history. The bow, the national weapon, might signify someone connected with Crete. A remarkable historical fact is illustrated by the bow. Beginning with Julius, the twelve Caesars, who ruled the empire in succession, were all of pure Roman blood. Domitian, the last of the twelve Caesars, the persecutor of John, was of the Roman stock, but he was the last emperor of an old Roman family that ruled for ages. He was succeeded by Nerva, the founder of a family that furnished five Caesars in succession. Trajan being the adopted son and successor of Nerva, as was Adrian of Trajan, Antonius of Adrian, and Aurelius of Antonius. Nerva, the first emperor of this new family, the inaugurator of this epic of Roman history, was not of Roman blood. Dion Cassius, a historian of that age, states that he was of Greek descent. And another Roman historian, Aurelius Victor, says that his family came from the Greek island of Crete, or in other words, he was a Cretan. We have already found that the national weapon of the Cretans was the bow, and that they were famous as bowmen in all the ancient armies. The Roman beast kingdom conquered nations thanks in part to use of iron weapons, which made it very effective at destroying the enemy. The mighty Roman Empire was conquering nations, fulfilling its role as the fourth beast kingdom of Daniel 2. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdues all kings, all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Daniel chapter 2 verse 40. The Roman Empire fulfills the fourth kingdom of Daniel chapter 7, 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. The first seal points to a time of temporary prosperity of the Roman Empire immediately after John wrote down the apocalyptic vision. But the first seal has another association. Chapter 12 Messiah set up his father's kingdom. In History Unveiling Prophecy, Henry Grayton Guinness says, The early church interpreted the first vision, that of the crowned rider seated upon a white horse, armed with a bow, going forth conquering and to conquer, as a representation of Christ going forth on his victorious mission. The words of Origen and his answer to Celsus strikingly exhibit the conviction of the primitive church that its marvelous progress could only be explained by attributing to the action of supernatural power. And in the vision thus interpreted is found a key to the entire prophecy, for this is the starting point of the whole. Seals, trumpets, and vials set forth a continuous course of history stretching to the consummation, having as its commencement the going forth of the gospel of Christ to accomplish its world-subduing work.
The inference is unavoidable that the apocalypse presents a prophetic foreview of the entire course of Christian history. From the foundation of the church to the end of the world, nor was any other interpretation ever known to the Christian world till the rise of modern futurism. Daniel foretold that Messiah would set up his kingdom in the days of the four beast kingdoms, not after them. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel 2, verse 44. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that shall not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. It took place in the first century when the fourth beast, kingdom of Rome, was in power. When you read the Gospels, you see Messiah continually saying that the kingdom is at hand. He isn't pointing to when he returns. He's proclaiming that it was set up at that time. He declared that the kingdom of Yah was set up while some of his disciples were still alive. As he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Mark chapter 9 verse 1. The desolation of Jerusalem, the temple, the Jewish leadership system, and the unbelieving Jewish nation in 70 AD led to the Messiah's kingdom being set up with the believing Jews and Gentiles. In Revelation, the bride of Messiah is called New Jerusalem. With physical Jerusalem destroyed, Jew and Gentile believers, the Ecclesia, the called out ones, are the citizens of holy Jerusalem. Messiah and the saints form the temple in which Yah dwells. With the physical temple in Jerusalem destroyed, the true temple was set up. For the Father does not dwell in a temple made with hands. Messiah is the cornerstone, the disciples, the foundation, and the saints are the stones that make up the temple walls. Messiah became the high priest of his temple, with the physical type of the Jewish high priest removed from power. Messiah took his rightful place as our high priest, who intercedes for us. The saints are the priests of Messiah's kingdom. With the Jewish priest system removed, Messiah's saints are still, I mean, are his priests. I cover this in detail in my Olivet Discourse Decoded book, and I have that one, brothers and sisters, too. But the bottom line is that Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, foretold that the Son of Man would set up the Father's kingdom during the reign of the four beast kingdoms. Messiah's kingdom expanded rapidly by supernatural power during the first few centuries. Messiah has empowered his saints with the word, the rod of iron, 
the scriptures to take control of the nations. The early church interpreted the first seal with Messiah going forth on his mission to conquer the enemy, Satan, and his Roman beast kingdom by preaching the gospel through his army of saints. Messiah's ecclesia is the set apart ones who advanced Yah's kingdom. Daniel chapter 2 verses 34 through 35 says that a stone was cut out without hands, became a great mountain nation, which filled the whole earth, and it was cast at the iron feet at the iron clay feet of the statue. Since then, Messiah's kingdom has become a large mountain, a great nation, and someday he will return for his kingdom saints. The battle between good and evil, Messiah versus Satan, the saints of holy Jerusalem versus the leaders of the great city of Rome, begins in the first seal. The two kingdoms are going forth and conquering at this time, the mighty Roman beast kingdom and the Messiah's spirit-filled assembly of saints. Interestingly, in Roman mythology, Cupid is the son of Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, and he is known as the god of affection, small g. Legend has it that Cupid shoots magical gold-tipped arrows at God, small g, and humans alike. By piercing their heart with an arrow, he causes individuals to fall deeply in love. The Roman beast kingdom conquers by force using the strength of iron. Amazingly, Messiah's kingdom conquers with a bow, shooting arrows of the gospel of love to cause people to fall in love with the Heavenly Father and His beloved Son. In Key to the Apocalypse, Henry Grayton Genesis says, It pleased God to order it in His providence, says Jonathan Edwards, that earthly power and dominion should be raised to its greatest height and appear in its utmost glory. In those four great monarchies that succeeded one another, and that everyone should be greater and more glorious than the proceeding before he set up the kingdom of his son. By this it appeared how much more glorious his spiritual kingdom was than the most glorious temporal kingdom. The strength and glory of Satan's kingdom in those four mighty monarchies appeared in its greatest height. For being the monarchies of the heathen world, the strength of them was the strength of Satan's kingdom. The 16th century Geneva Bible says, The white horse signifies innocence, victory, and philosophy, felicity, 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 which should come by the preaching of the gospel. Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible in 1832 says, A white horse, supposed to represent the gospel system and pointing out its excellence, swiftness, and purity. He that sat on him, Jesus Christ, a bow, the preaching of the gospel, darting conviction into the hearts of sinners, a crown, the emblem of the kingdom, which Christ is to establish on earth. Matthew Poole's commentary on the Holy Bible, 1684, says, Some, by this white horse, understand the gospel, 
others the Roman Empire. And by him that sat thereon with a bow, some understand Christ going forth with the power to convert the nations. Others, and in my opinion, more probably, the Roman emperors armed with power and having the imperial crown carrying all before them. So as that which God intended by this to reveal St. John was that the Roman emperors should not continue and use their power against his church. John Gill's exposition or ex exposition of the entire Bible, 1748 says, And I saw and behold, a white horse represents the ministration of the gospel in the times of the apostles, which were just now finishing. John being the last one of them who saw this vision. Its white color may denote the purity of gospel truths, the peace it proclaims, the joy brings, and the triumph that attends it on account of victories obtained by it and which is afterwards suggested. The bow is the word of the gospel and the arrows at doctrines of it. And a crown was given unto him. By God the Father, expressive of Christ's regal power and authority of his honor and dignity and of his victories and conquests. The People's New Testament of Barton Johnson, 1891, says, And in the vision thus interpreted is found a key to the entire prophecy, for this is the starting point of the whole. Seals, trumpets, vials set forth a continuous course of history, stretching to con consummation, having as its commencement the going forth of the gospel of Christ to accomplish its world-subduing work. Like a grain of mustard seed, the kingdom of Messiah grew and became greater than the mighty Roman Empire. Oh, hmm. That's something to think about. Never looked at it that way, ever, actually. <laughs> All right, I'm going to read one more chapter, then I will close with this reading. We're in chapter 13, The Mystery of Iniquity. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, the Apostle Paul proclaimed that the mystery of iniquity was already at work in the first century. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. He's saying that the false beliefs that would cause some to fall away and lead to false religion of the son of perdition had already permeated at the early assembly of saints. To counter Messiah's kingdom, Assembly of Saints, Satan laid the foundation for his own Christian, in quotation marks, church. We see the fulfillment of that in Acts chapter 8, verse 20 through 23, when Luke tells us about Simon Magus, whom the Samaritans, the Samaritans, Samarians, I'm sorry, the Samarians, deemed with a great power of God. This is very interesting. Stop there just for a minute. Like I said, I have not read on any further. But he, there's a statue of this guy, this Simon Magus. No joke. I'm not even kidding. At the Vatican. Isn't that weird? That's a little bit weird. So let's keep reading. Let's see what he says. He tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit and was rebuked by Peter. Magus's name means Zoaster. 
a practitioner, a priest of astrology and magic, a sorcerer. Deuteronomy chapter 29, 16 through 18 points to the iniquity of idol worship being gall and wormwood, bitterness. Peter was proclaiming that Simon the sorcerer was a cause of bitterness and corruption to others. Peter was making a prophetic statement foretelling Simon's sinful role and how his teachings would mislead people. The Babylonian mystery religion influenced those in Samaria, which is where Simon Magus originated. He used magic to deceive people, which gained him fame. Magus is the Chaldean word for priest making Simon a false priest. Messiah warned, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Simon the sorcerer was a forerunner of the Antichrist. Let's see. I remember I did that, guys. I don't know where it's at now. Uh, A.C. Where's that at? Okay, I'm going to have to pause it. I've got to pull that up again. Let me pull that up. I want to make sure this abbreviation's right. Okay, I am back. The ACBP is the Antichrist Beast Oh, Okay, I wanted to make sure I got that right. Who pretend to be priests the Messiah, but really serve Satan's agenda. After Peter admonished Simon, the sorcerer went to Rome to proclaim to be an apostle messiah, deceive people, and draw them under his authority. It appears that he formed his own church in the name of Jesus, Isous, I-E-S-O-U-S, in which he was the bishop, the leader of a church designed by Satan to seek to overthrow the true assembly of Messiah. He blended the Babylonian mystery religion with Messiah's teaching to create a universal church that would attract all of Rome. Does that sound familiar? Is that not what the RCC is, which is the Roman Catholic Church? A false church led by a Roman bishop filled with idols, which teaches a false messiah and a false gospel to deceive people? From Simon's Gnostic teachings, a sect of Simonians flourished, preached a false messiah and false gospel, and even taught that Simon was the Holy Father in human form to bring salvation to them. We can see a direct connection with the sect of Simonians who revered Simon as the sun god and Helen as the moon goddess to what became the RCC where the Pope is revered as the sun god, Mary as the moon goddess, the queen of heaven. In 152 AD, in the first apology of Justin Martyr, Justin noted that the sect of the Simonians appeared to have been formidable as he spoke of the founder, Simon, four times. He describes him as a formidable magician who came to Rome in the days of Claudius Caesar. He was honored as a god, small g, with a statue right there erected on the Tiber between the two bridges bearing the inscription, Simonia di Sancto, the holy god Simon, small g. I knew it was there. The word pater means father, as we find in the word paternal. We find this other Peter calling himself Simon the father. Bishops of Rome preempted the old mitheric high priest ancient's title of pater patrum, which became papa or pope, meaning father. The popes of Rome call themselves by the holy father, the holy Peter. Really? Isn't that just something? Hmm. 
The RCC, the Roman Catholic Church, proclaims that Peter spent 25 years in Rome as the first bishop, Pope, until he was martyred by being crucified upside down in the last year of Nero's reign. But the narrative of Peter being in Rome that long is easily proven to be false. We can see that it was not the Apostle Peter who was the first Pope, but instead it was Simon the Sorcerer. He set up the Babylonian priesthood of what became the RCC. The mystery of iniquity, which was started in the first century, became the false religion of Romanism. Pagan sun gods are symbolized by a pole or upright stake, which are phallic symbols, sacred peters. An ancient an Egyptian obelisk was, was erected in St. Peter's Square at the Vatican in the middle of a sun wheel. It sits in front of St. Peter's Basilica, the temple of their chief god, Simon Magus, the Holy Peter, and his successors, the popes of Rome. I've seen all this. I've seen it all. And it was so sickened by what I had seen. I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you. Because, and God knows it to be true. I mean, oh my goodness, you guys. The day I went to the Vatican and to the museum, such darkness. I, I literally despised that place. And I'm not kidding you. I was going there and I was, I was not fully convinced, I guess you want to say, that the Roman Catholics were not Christian. I really wasn't fully convinced. I knew that they were deceived. You know what I mean? But I didn't know how deep the deception was. Quite honestly, I did not know. I did not know. I've had in-laws that were Roman Catholics. And they seemed to be very good people. You know what I mean? But I know that they prayed to Mary. They used these rosaries, these beads and penance. And that stuff wasn't of the Bible. And I just, I kind of put it on the back burner or whatever. But like, you know, they're just deceived, but they're good Christians and when I went to Rome, mm -mm. it was awful. I hated it. I despised it. I can't even tell you. I just despised it. Anyway, let's keep going. Simon Magus sought to prove his power and perhaps parody when Satan tempted Messiah to throw himself off the temple's pinnacle. In the St. Petro Bas Bas Basilica in Vatican City, Stucco's boss relief panels and the portico presents the events in the life of St. Peter, including the fall of Simon Magus. Oh my, a mosaic of the death of Simon Magus was made in the 12th century at the Mosaic Palatine Chapel in Palermo, Sicily. It shows the Apostle Paul knelt while Peter commanded the demons to let Simon fall. Magus reportedly broke his leg and was severely hurt and died a few days later. Losing Simon Magus, his top magician, no doubt enraged Nero against Peter and Paul. And interestingly, Nero killed both of them. We can see that the mystery of iniquity pointed to Simon Magus, the founder of what became the RCC of the AC. BP, so the Roman Catholic Church of the Antichrist, Beast, Prophet.
poke. Make, make sure I got that right because, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. The Antichrist Beast Pope, which is the White Pope. Okay. Satan's use of Simon the Sorcerer, who pretended to be an apostle of Messiah, set up the wheat and the tares narrative. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Matthew chapter 13, verse 25. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together. First the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew chapter 13, verse 30. Interesting in pointing to the desolation of Rome's harlot church. Revelation chapter 18, verse 23 declares, For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm going to keep that there, leave that there. I will have a picture of the statue of Simon Magus in, uh, in the video. Okay, brothers and sisters, take this before the Lord in prayer. Seek his wisdom. Please seek his wisdom. Ask him to show you the truth. Ask him to lead you, to guide you, to search the scriptures for yourself. You know, there's so much to say, but I'm not going to say anything because I'm not going to influence anyone with their opinion or their thoughts or their final decision. I want you to go to the Father. Go to the Father. Oh, my God. In the name of his one and only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Spirit, the precious Holy Spirit. Wow. You know, there's one thing that I do want to make a comment on, which I find is absolutely so cool, utterly cool, is... um. We are the body, right, of uh, Jesus Christ. And it, it's kind of like, you know, on how he has built his church, that we are the kingdom. And, uh, you know, we are the temple of God. All right, that's what I'm trying to get at. We are the temple of God, are we not? And in the midst of the temple, or... In the holies of holies, I should say, was the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of Almighty God. That is Jesus Christ. And it is His Spirit we've been given. This is the Spirit of Christ. And He dwells in these temples, these earthen vessels. So that we have such a precious gift, a treasure within these earthen vessels. Ask him to lead you, to guide you, to teach you, to show you, to give you the discernment. Because you know what? We must have it in order to be able to stand in the day that we are living in. Keep your eyes on Jesus, brothers and sisters. Your nose in the book, which is the word of God. And embed the word of God upon the tablets of your hearts. So you will not sin against God or be deceived. Till next time. I love you all. Bye-bye.